This is amazing. I'm in the new Royal Hospital and I'm talking to Fran McNichol. Now, let me take you back. This lovely lady just took my breath away. She's a horse person. She loves horses and decided to go to Mongolia to raise money. I kept in touch. We did a radio show. We did a podcast. I did my column. It's nearly a year ago that it happened. I said to Fran, you've got to talk to me. And she's very kindly looking incredibly fit considering she was on a horse for how many days? 84 days on the horse. That's what I thought. Fran, first of all, tell us who you are and tell us about the dream that you've always had. So let's fill in the blanks from the beginning and then we'll talk about the journey. Okay, so I'm a colorectal surgeon at the um, Royal Liverpool University Hospital. We're in our shiny new building, as Pete just said. Um, And I have loved horses since I was a kid and just always dreamt of cantering off into the sunset, as all horsey girls do. Um, So just over a year ago, um, I started on the expedition of a lifetime, which was to ride across outer Mongolia um, for charity with a group of um, like-minded individuals from all over the world. (laughs) Like-minded. Like-minded, yes. What did you... uh, I've asked you this before, but I've got to ask you again. What did everybody here say when you said you were taking time out? Um... If you said I was nuts, because that many days on a horse is many people's idea of hell. Um, A few people said, I wish I could do that. And of course, the answer to that is you can. You just have to decide that you want to. Um, And some people were, yeah, genuinely a bit envious, I think. Really? (laughs) But it's a big dream. But to actually, so many people listening now to this Mm. podcast will know they've got dreams, but Mm. a lot of people don't do anything about it. What Mm. would you say to them? I would just say, just, you have to make a decision. So the honest answer is I'd probably seen the publicity for the Blue Wolf Totem Expedition two or three years before we were due to go. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, that's nice, but I can't take three months out of my life and do something crazy like that. Um, And then actually I got a reminder about a year and a half before we were due to go. And my life had changed a lot since then. I'd had some, you know, divorce, etc. And suddenly you're like, well, actually, there's nothing stopping me apart from work. Um, I can just do it. And it took some organising and it took some saving and it took some fundraising. Um, But most of all, it just took the determination to say, I am going to do this. And... work and um, people say oh you know what, what if work had said no and frankly I told them I would resign if they didn't let me go and I probably well, meant it yeah. at the time. With the pandemic that we've had mm-hmm. a lot of people have changed their lifestyles now mm-hmm. haven't they mm-hmm. do you think that would have been a big factor if that had happened before you'd made the decision? I think the pandemic definitely made us realise what's important to us and you know people lost loved ones I mean Liverpool particularly hard hit Um, And I think there was a realisation that you can't wait for tomorrow to do stuff. You have to just get on with it. Um, Yeah, seize the day. Seize the day. Now, it was for charity. Mm -hmm. And I remember this charity. It will stay with me forever because I cannot forget little children living in tips. Yeah, so in in Mongolia, um, everyone is entitled to a parcel of land. Um, when you move to the city, if you want a parcel of land in the city, you have to give up your land in the country. And many people are reluctant to do that. 
So they end up living in um, shanty towns, essentially, on the edge of the city, and um, they can't get registered. And so they subsist by picking through the rubbish dump, um, scavenging for stuff they can sell and um, make a living that way. And the charity goes and gets all the preschool age children from those families, puts them in nursery, feeds them, clothes them, educates them, but actually also free up the parents to then go and look for proper jobs as well, because they're not having to mind the kids to the same degree. And that's because of the parcel of land. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. So every person there gets a parcel of land. Well, is entitled to apply for a parcel of land. So it's a a leftover of communism, I guess, and the nomadic culture and, and the democracy. Before we talk about the amazing trip you went on and you are a horse lover, did you get to see the tips where these children lived? Yeah. No, absolutely. Tell me, you, you're in mm. the medical profession, you must have been horrified. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, they, they are literally shanty towns of girls and then the, the rubbish tip is huge and, um, you know, they're just filthy, really. I mean, um, you know, the... What's the word? Rubbish processing in um, less developed countries isn't great anyway. And, and there are just families just, just literally on there, bent over, sifting through, looking for things that might be worth selling. When I first interviewed you, you mm. told me mm. you had to give your life story. It was a hell of a process to get mm. filled in all the forms. Not the form. We had a two-hour interview. Oh, sorry, an interview. Yeah, yeah, interview. it was. It was, yeah. So um, the, the lady who organised the trip is a very astute people person, as I discovered, and um, she wanted to make sure that the group would um, gel because we were going to be together, you know, for three months, like um, like the, the biggest social experiment of all time, really. Um, so, yeah, we, we got interviewed and questioned about, you know, what are your weaknesses, what are your strengths, um, how will you cope without running water for how however long etc etc um so yeah it was um she picked well <laughs> how many of you went um 17 international riders um and then probably there were probably about 15 crew all together but we only ever had sort of a dozen with us at any one time but they, so you had a crew with you yeah which yeah. was important yeah. so getting packed before you went was this <laughs> a problem um Knowing what to take, um, I think, as I said to you on the previous, the the um, the range of temperatures was minus 10 up until about plus 40 because we were starting in the desert and ending up in the mountains. Um, you know, the, the weather's really changeable in Mongolia. You're completely exposed to it. Um, so lots of layers. And then um, in terms of camping gear, it was hard to know what would make the difference between comfort and misery really um so a good sleeping mat a good sleeping bag um and then i took too many clothes in the end we always do um but it was good because it was a long trip so some of them i managed to um, discard halfway right now you're a horse person you have mm-hmm. horses of your own mm-hmm. um what was it and i always remember i put it in the article i don't know if i'll love horses again when i come back but mm-hmm. what was it like saying goodbye to them um it was, it's tricky. I mean, one of my horses um, was, you know, took a lot of looking after. So it was more about just the logistics of having everything organised, having money in the right place, having people set up. They're on full livery anyway, but it was more about the, um, it ended up being envelopes of money scattered around in various people's houses. But saying goodbye to them, was it upsetting? Yeah, they, it's, they, they were fine. They were fine. Were you fine? 
so the relationship with horses is really is strange because it's not as close as a relationship with a dog it's not like you are you know you, you don't literally share your home with them um so it was more worry about would they be okay and then um yeah the good horse i was i miss him i mean, miss him yeah right <laughs> so we got nearer the date yeah any last minute woof, wobbles not for us um i mean the no it was it was all organized um work made me take unpaid leave but i sort of expected that so you know i was trying to do it all as holiday and then only have a little bit of unpaid leave and then about 6 weeks before we were due to go they said oh no you have to have to have it all as unpaid leave um but i'd had a sneaky suspicion that that might occur so again i had had stashes of money in various places um and then the wobble in mongolia was that they got foot and mouth disease um and we had to change the route um so instead of starting in the desert we ended up starting in UB and then taking a diversion around the foot and mouth area going east first and then coming back to UB and then going west so I, I remember also from mm. me mentioning the mm. war which is still on mm -hmm. but it had only just sort of started yeah. with Russia and you were bordering on the Russian borders weren't you so the reindeer people live in a nature reserve where you have to get permission from the Russian government to enter the nature reserve but it is once you get there you realize how far away it is that you know very few russians are interested in that region and very few mongolians are interested in that region it is a range of mountains with some nomadic people and some theoretical strategic control over the border but it's it might as well be out of space <laughs> i'm talking to fran about the most amazing trip so there was the build up to the trip it was all for charity unpaid leave a very um, astute medical lady who loves horses where did you fly from to where um so from manchester to dubai um no sorry turkey manchester to turkey um and then, yeah, 16 hours in Turkey airport. Um, and then um, Istanbul to UB in Mongolia. How long was that all together? Um, the flights only added up to about 16 hours, I think. Um, but then because um, there was a change to the schedule and um, one of the connections looked very tight and I decided I didn't like how tight that connection was and I'd rather sit in Istanbul overnight and have three meals there sort of thing um, as it turned out it was quite good because I had an assignment for uni to finish before I went away <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing that in the airport and were you in Istanbul airport in, in um, mm. the, um, the new airport yes which yes. is beautiful it's I, very I've driven shiny, there recently. Yes. very nice airport yeah. so you couldn't been in a better airport yeah when did you first meet up with the all the people you were going with um, so the um, we arrived um, or arrived in UB. The hotel I was in. Um, well, there were about seven of us, I think, on the final flight. So we got met at UB Airport by the um, the guides, essentially, who were going to be our horsey guides. But they turned up with vehicles, not horses, that day, um, and they picked us up and took us to our various hotels. Um, or hostels they weren't really hotels um and there were five of us in my hotel so um I again was still writing this assignment so I sort of said hello um did a bit more got it handed in and then we went out for the first dinner um, what did you feel when you first met them because you were going to spend 
the most extraordinary time. And, and you can be honest, because no one's listening. <laughs> they on. might be. Oh, they might be, right. <laughs> uh, uh, we won't mention names. We'll you were very them. popular. Yeah. Your first podcast was very popular. Oh, um, really? Oh, great. <laughs> so, yeah, your, your, your fame has now spread around the world. Um, no, so, it, you know, you're just looking at people and sizing them up, and you know you've got horses in common. And um, I think the thing that became apparent early on was that actually it takes a very special kind of person to be able to say I will step off the hamster wheel for three months and so they were varying degrees of horses obsessed people but um the common theme was actually you know prepared to um go and explore and do this adventure um but the first I think it was like I said to you when you don't know people you start off very polite don't you you have to know people quite well before you can have an argument with them I think (laughs) (laughs) so what sort of jobs did they do from all walks um, of life? All walks of life. So a professor, um, a small animal vet, um, a, an electrician, um, yeah, a couple of a sort of horse trainer, um, comms people, just literally everything mm. you could think right. of. Were, were any of them nervous? Or were they just excited about it? I think we were all nervous. And I think um, some, of, some of them weren't... Um, super experienced or not not super um super skilled riders shall we say there were a few who um only really ride on holiday and or had only ridden in Mongolia and obviously it's um you know three months in the saddle so um and and the Mongolian ponies have a reputation for being feisty sorry horses we're not allowed to call them ponies why because they well they're very small but they're very magnificent so and the Mongolians are quite a macho culture so obviously they have to be horses (laughs) And of course, something you stayed with me as well, once again, mm. use it, even though they are mm. your pack horse, your mm. horses, whatever, they're still edible. Oh, they yeah. eat everything, don't they? Yeah. Th- yeah. Th- that's their principle. Yeah. Yeah. So explain, they... explain that to people, because people go, whoa, what? Well, so Mongolia is a very arid country. Um, huge quantities of it are not really cultivatable because there's not enough water. Um, so, and the culture is based on your herds of whatever they may be. So sheep, goats, horses, um, you know, camels, if you're in the right place, and then reindeer, if you're in the right place and your wealth is measured in how many animals you own. Um, but because all you have is grass and animals, the diet is essentially meat and milk and cheese based. Um, and when your animal is no longer, um, usable or, um, useful, um, they go in the pot. Simple as that. Simple mm. as that. Um, what are they like? I know you went right across mm. the country. We'll talk about that. But the people you met in general as a race, were they friendly, hospitable, a uh, bit strange or? So in, um, mostly um, incredibly friendly, incredibly hospitable. Um, again, because it's a you know country based on a nomadic culture, there is an automatic you know, helping people in trouble, offering succour, offering shelter. Um, we had visitors wherever we went. So, um, you know, you'd sort of stop for a place for lunch or you'd stop for camp and then within 20 minutes someone would turn up on a motorbike. They'd get treated to, you know, food with the, the crew. Um, one guy came to visit us and he ended up spending five or six days riding with us, just helping out and wow. came on the adventure with us sort of thing. Um now, you mentioned food. Mm-hmm. Was there a staple diet or was there any luxuries or was it 
I am on the horse, going across Mongolia, end of story. Um, we, so lots of um, the, the Mongolian supermarkets have more aisles than you have ever seen for sugar <laughs> and sweet treats. So you walk in and there's like 10 aisles of sweets. There might be half an aisle of fresh fruit if you're lucky. Um, and then, you know, the rest is the sort of dried stuff because, you know, the supply chain isn't established there. Um, so we were mostly fueled by chocolate and sugar for the short breaks. Um, and then the, um, yeah, the, the main meals were either soup or um, pasta heavy. The Mongolians basically eat meat and potatoes and they eat an awful lot of um, mutton, but it's quite old mutton. And um, if we ate that every day, we'd be a complete mess because our constitutions aren't mm. ready for it. What did you miss food-wise? <sighs> Vegetables, lettuce. Lettuce. Crazy. No, no, Lettuce. no, no, no. It's, it's, it's wild. It's wild. So you started off mm-hmm. and they changed the route because mm-hmm. of the foot and mouth and yeah. the problem with Russians. Mm-hmm. Was it a fascinating uh, mm-hmm. route? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We, we, we saw, um, so we started off in the grasslands, um, headed east um, through the sort of mountains and larch forests. Um, the, the scenery, it's funny because it sort of... <sighs> It felt like it was going on forever, but it also changed just enough every day. It's like riding through a picture painting. Um, we had snowstorms, we had rainstorms, we had sandstorms. We were obviously super hot, um, luckily only for a few days um, in the desert. Um, and yeah, it was it's just incredible. I mean, what we always said was, if you don't like the weather, just wait 10 minutes because it changed again. Wow. Um, you know, the, 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 there were some amazing thunderstorms, but we just stopped, got off the horse, waited it out and um, hiding under the vehicles. Or, and then, yeah, it would stop raining and the wind would come up again and you'd be dry in 20 minutes. So 84 days, how many mm. horse changes? Um, about every 10 to 14. So I think, um, I can't remember, but I, I worked out I'd probably ridden 45 or 50 different horses. Did you find any you didn't like? Oh, yeah. <laughs> then as somebody who is a horse person who loves horses mm. but knows horses mm. what do you do about that when there's no chemistry between and forget the people <laughs> no chemistry between you and the horse it wasn't so much the um so the reason for not liking them wasn't necessarily that there was no chemistry it was um that they were what's the word a bit too nervous or a bit too twitchy and then some of them were just really uncomfortable so they'd actually be quite nice horses um but you know, uncomfortable. I uncomfortable thought a horse is a horse is a horse. No. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so just like people can be perfect athletes or they can be hobbly crocs, um, you know, horses are the same, if you like, and particularly horses that are, um, you know, working horses. The Mongolians, um, their saddles, they um, ride on a wooden saddle that's quite a stiff frame. And so they never really, um, it doesn't matter what the horse is doing underneath them. They're almost perched on this throne above the horse. And that's very different from the way we, we ride. Um, and some of the horses were just um, quite uneven. And when you ride English style, that becomes quite um, wearing on your back, if you like. If you just joined us, uh, this is really just a fascinating um, look back with Fran from the Royal Hospital at this amazing journey of 84 days across Mongolia on horseback. Uh, was the group were you were with anybody ill? Any problems? Um, we had 
we did all right actually so really good at the beginning um there were a couple of injuries so one lady had to go home and back to Canada quite early because she um there were quite a lot of rodent holes and her horse tripped in a rodent hole and she fell off and then um it turned out she'd cracked some ribs um so she sort of toughed it out for a week or so to see if anything improved and then it became obvious that it, things weren't going to improve so she um flew herself home to Canada um and then other than that there was a we did really well until right near the end and then there was um I think it was when we just sort of hit civilization again um at the end um we had norovirus and a really nasty cold mm. that went through the group interesting as somebody who is a medical person all your life mm. and what you do for a living the pandemic did that hit mongolia or not were you conscious about masks or anything at all to do so with we that? we were we were the first um we arrived really as um only a few weeks after they'd opened things up to international tourists oh, again right. properly um there's only three and a half million people in mongolia so they did take it very seriously they did have lockdown um they had a really good um vaccination program um and you know it was all it all seemed quite organized um and because most people do come down to the towns or cities in the winter because the winters are ferocious um they managed to um target most people and keep control of it all mm. um so yeah i think they they did but obviously you know nobody no hospital no. system to speak of really mm. once you get out in the sticks what i was worried about mm-hmm. uh was bandits and violence did you come across any problems um no so we were quite a big group we were we were like a traveling circus really um i mean the you know there was the cook truck a couple of support vehicles um we had a school bus with us for um some of the which was acting as a transport vehicle but also taking us to the sites at the end of the day's riding and things um if you've never been for if you've never been off-roading in a school bus i don't recommend it it's not much <laughs> fun um so you know we were quite a big entity um and you know i think the the crew were when we got visitors the crew were quite good at picking out who was useful and nice and friendly and who wasn't and some people got warmer welcomes than others um the only real bit of trouble we had was um right up in the um northeast by the eagle hunters um and the first place that we tried to camp they were basically very protective of their summer grazing and ran the crew off essentially um and you know i think there were some loud words spoken and some sticks waved and the message came back that we were moving and we ended up camping on the sort of municipal land just in front of the town um any problems with police or armed forces no, nothing no, at all no, no so it was quite smooth yeah as the, a trip. the logistics yeah. were beautifully done you had mm. a few dreams that you mm. wanted you just mentioned that mm. you mentioned the radio people mm. you mentioned uh, the eagle people yeah. what did you see that you loved i know there must have been so much about yeah. so um meeting the reindeer people was incredible getting why to, why um, because they had well they they live in this really remote place so it's this sort of you know valleys right up in the mountains they they're a fairly contained community um they they talk to each other by walkie talkie um the 
they've got a strong shamanic tradition and also a strong healing tradition. And interestingly, um, stroking a reindeer is the most calming thing you'll ever do, I think. They just radiate peace and the people who live with them and look after them um, have that same sort of beautiful peace. Um, so that was good. Um, and the other... The other sort of memorable experience was there was one waterfall that we went to, but um, the whole crew came as well. So we, we all piled onto the school bus, <laughs> had the most horrific, horrific drive, you know, cross country on the, the muddy rock Because there's roads. no road. Well, no... They're, yeah, they're, they're dirt roads. Right. So, you know, every bit of Mongolia could be a road, really, but it isn't. Um but then we got to this waterfall and it was a really beautiful waterfall and pool and um, many Mongolians don't swim. Um, they think water's healthy. Um, most of them don't learn to swim. Um, and they were really jealous of the fact that we swam to the back and were underneath the waterfall with the waterfall falling in front of us. And, um, and so a few of the guys were actually, for the rest of the trip, every opportunity they got, they were taking swimming lessons so that the next time they went back there, they could do the same. Are they nice people? Yes. Yeah. Uh, do they make friends for life? Are they friends? Yeah, no, friends? absolutely, yeah. I mean, they're, they're quite deadpan and they're um, sort of, you know, quite serious, um, what's the word, naturally serious resting face, but then, you know, really good sense of humour and really kind and caring. I know everybody will want to know, what happened about language barriers? Um, <laughs> so we had a couple of translators with us, um, 70% of communication is non-verbal. So actually it's amazing how much you can manage to do, um, you know, so we'd you get the meaning of stuff. We'd be showing each other photos or talking about stuff. And then um, whenever we needed to have a proper conversation, um, you know, the doctor and one of the um, the sort of trekking company sons as it were um, and then Julie the lady who organised it all they all spoke fluent enough English to be translators. Did it go fast? Um, it went very very slowly at the beginning um, and then it just seemed to accelerate and the, la the last sort of four or five weeks it was almost like I need to I wanted to slow down time and enjoy every moment because you suddenly... We communicated a little bit. What mm. was the form of communication? Did you communicate with family and friends? So we, we got... Um, most of the little villages and towns have radio masts. So when you got within range, you would get a bit of signal. So it was usually possible to um, make phone calls or, you know, have Facebook Messenger or a bit of WhatsApp. Um, so I suppose every, every three to five days, there'd be reliable signal. Um, did you keep in touch with what was happening in the country or did you want to switch yourself off from news and bulletins? I, di I, didn't, I didn't want to... I didn't do much news and bulletins. Um, the, the one thing I do remember is um, the announcement of Wade versus Roe in the States, getting um, that ruling getting overturned. And one of, the, one of the professors who was with us was actually one of the original feminist activists in the States who did a lot of work at the beginning. So that was a, a devastating piece of news. Um, and particularly because the group was 98% women. And, yeah. yeah. As a medical person, what's the medical situation like in Mongolia? Um, they're pretty well... So they're pretty well looked after because they all go to the cities in the winter. Um, so most people have seen a doctor, get to see a doctor. Um, there are clinics. So, you know, when people fell off, it would be a quick, um, where's the nearest x-ray machine? Which direction is it? Um, 
and you know it would be a few hours drive away but I think the route was chosen so that we weren't super remote um and then I had to do little bits so we had I got to drain a tooth abscess in the middle of the prairie that was good um and then one of the other girls um turned out she had a congenital heart condition that she hadn't told the team about when she took the job she was one of the cook's assistants um, because she needed the money um and she got a bit dehydrated and a bit too tired one day and then sort of got a bit unwell literally in the middle of nowhere so and thank goodness for you (laughs) yeah tell me what's the cost of living like and what's life like is there a rich set of people in uh, mongolia or is it all poor no it's, it's it there's no one really poor apart from the dispossessed land people i think there is um there's definitely tears um and then you know as i say the herders measure their wealth in how many animals they've got um so but there there are there's like some mega corporations that are now bit like anywhere else capitalizing on that getting all the herders to buy loads of animals in shell company names and and things so um in in the city i think you can i mean that the the money is just like monopoly money so people earn two to three thousand pounds a year in the city but that would be you know that would be a reasonable basic standard of living um and then once you're out in the sticks, um, I don't think money features a huge amount. There's a lot of barter still. In a, still? Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. What did you miss most, apart from your family and friends? Uh, sorry, and lettuce. And lettuce. Yeah, <laughs> but what did you miss about life? Did you, I mean, could you spend time on a, with a book or was it just sleeping and riding? Um, no, there, there was plenty of downtime. I didn't manage to read very much at all, I think because I was just so overstimulated with all the sights and sounds and you know, energy of having to, um, well, not be on your best behaviour, but having to people quite, you know, having to deal with people quite a lot of the day. So um, I didn't do nearly as much reading as I thought I would. Um, I think it was sort of just finding space um, or it was sort of, you could have time alone, but you weren't really alone. Someone always had to know where you were and keep an eye on you and, so um, it wasn't like there was someone in your face the whole time, but you never, never had complete freedom just to do what you wanted. Any wild animals? Um, there are. There's foxes and there's small wild cats, um, and then the yeah wolves in some areas. So when we went up to the reindeer people, they were wolf hunting when we arrived. Um, you had no problems with animals, wild animals. We had one night where the horses all got a bit upset, and that was probably a wolf coming too close. Um, but again, because we were quite a big outfit. Yeah. Was there one day that you'll never forget? I mean, apart from the the waterfall. I think um, the ride up to the reindeer people, because we're basically climbing the side of this mountain, and we had to ride along the ice on a frozen river. Um, and then it was a really um, quite a steep climb. Um, and then when we got to the top, the mountains just opened up in front of us. Um, and yeah, it was it sort of had everything. It was a bit of adventure and totally going somewhere new. And um, and really, we didn't have any vehicles with us because you can't take vehicles into the reserve. So it was one of the few times where we actually felt like we had completely left civilization behind. Were they pleased to see you? Um, <laughs> or cautious 
well they they you know they they make money off people coming to stay with them really so you know it was it, i mean it was lovely we stayed with them for two and a half days on their camp um we were resting um they put on some reindeer races and let oh, us wow. ride the reindeer and stuff and then we played with their kids and kept their kids entertained for a day so worked both ways now you mentioned money what is the money um they're called mongolian tugrits um we were million. We were all millionaires because it's. I, I can't even remember. I think seven tugwits is like point naught three of a pence or something ridiculous. It's just, you know, you, you're talking. You, you, the, the prices are all. You take the last three noughts off because they just don't even bother because there's too many noughts. How did you feel when it came to an end? Um, just got it. I mean, it's glad. You know, weird, elated. Um, obviously. You know, at the beginning, the numbers just seemed incredible, um, you know, doing the, the distance and raising the money and achieving, you know, having got all that way without actually killing anyone, as in falling out with anyone, because um, I was worried about that side of it. Um, and then, yeah, some friends for life. Um, and I just, I was worried that I would come back and it would fade. I think that was the great, you know, because you go away on holiday for two weeks, you step back into your life and half an hour later it's like it never happened and I was um, that was the biggest worry was that that would be the case but um that has not yet happened and the um the glow and the um you know the positive benefits of understanding what's important in life etc are still mostly there now how did how long did it take you to get back into the way of life sleeping in a proper bed and not having a horse there <laughs> so um well, my my own, I sort of got cracking with my own horses back home pretty quickly. So um, I think the hardest thing was um, not being, you know, being inside um, and not so much at home because I live on a farm anyway. And, you know, we came back um, late summer, so it wasn't straight into straight into indoor life. But um, being back at work um, felt confining initially. Did people see a difference in you? Did people say you're different? I think it's that you look very well. Yeah. You do look very well still. <laughs> still got a great town. Um, so how much money did you raise? Um, the, the group total was um, $150,000. Um, so between the 17 of us, that's probably still going up a bit since then. But um, the individual contribution pages have now, um, you know, are now being wound down. Um, and so most of the donations are going into the main. Remind everybody what you did it for. So it's the Valu Foundation, which is a charity that takes disadvantaged children whose families scavenge on the rubbish tip in the capital of Mongolia um, and puts them in nursery, gives them food, clothing and an education to break the cycle of poverty. Looking back, you glad you did it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Would you do it again? Um not the same thing. I, well, yes, yes, I would do it again. I don't need to do it again now I've done that. Um, but I am um, work now about this, I think. I'm going to um, Argentina, February 2024, to do the Gaucho Derby, which is... Wow, I, I love Argentina. Yeah. I absolutely love Argentina. Yeah. How can people find out more about you? Is there mm. a website or anything they can look at? Um, so... 
Me, just, well, if you Google Fran McNichol, apparently the Valu Foundation and the Mongolia stuff comes up first. And the doctory stuff is on about page two, which I think is probably the right way around. Um, for the charity, um, then the Valu Foundation is the website. Um, and if anyone wants to go riding in Mongolia, then um, Horse Trek Mongolia are the company that fixed and did all the logistics and also are part of the Valu Foundation and donate their profit or a percentage of their profits to the charity. It's difficult, but I do believe that people mm. should. I believe students mm. should take a year out mm. after they've done university. Mm. I believe if you can, mm. if it's possible, but anything's possible, isn't it? Absolutely. It just, it just has to, you know, you just have to want it and make it happen. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know, it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.